Oh, he'll he'll make it a proper length. I don't know how to stop recording. Welcome to Extra Sauce on the Side, uh, where we talk about the things that make life a little bit more interesting. Um, I am here with my good pal, Marissa Fellows. Uh, Today, we're going to talk a little bit about um, being a millennial and existing, kind of. Um, (laughs) uh, Marissa just moved back home this year during the pandemic. And I know that that experience is very um, common for our generation for good reasons. And she also had quite a bit of success before she did that. So I'd love to hear about um, really like you grew up here in the Grand Rapids area. What caused you to leave in the first place? Uh, Talk a little bit about your education background and what you're passionate about and where you ended up. Such a That's hard- a lot of questions in one. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. It, it's, you know, this will go from more formal. Like you just yeah. became an HR interviewer and yeah. you know, why, should, why should Sam Denman hire me? And we'll end <laughs> much more casual. So, well, I um, really want people to know that you have this like elite college career where you <laughs> got great grades and like did a bunch of really cool things. And <laughs> Not everyone here knows that about you. So that's where we're going to start. Well, that's awfully generous of you. And I think, (laughs) you know what? It's funny because I have had quite a transformation in life. And I think I like myself a lot more now. And sometimes I say, oh, I don't know if I would want to hang out with me three years ago. You know? Yeah. (laughs) I think that's a good litmus test that you're growing and gaining self-awareness and ultimately choosing and re-choosing the life that you want to live. So with that, I guess as a foundation, I won't go too long into my background, but <laughs> we'll talk all about that too. That's kind of gonna, the point of this episode is really to yes. to establish that Sometimes you feel like you're taking a step backwards, but really you're taking a step in the right direction. It's just the way society views that is not always the best. Absolutely. And like know thyself. Yeah. That is crucial. So I think that's kind of where I'll start talking about, you know, the underpinnings of my career because... I was a highly ambitious and inquisitive child and, you know, really was, I loved public speaking. And so people would just say to me, oh, Marissa, you're such a great public speaker. You should be a lawyer. And so knowing not, you don't have many sources of input in your life in, in high school beyond, you know, if you're motivated by grades, if you're curious and good at standardized tests, you know, you kind of fit into a bucket and that happened to be the bucket that I was in. And so onward, I went to UMish and was studying political science and expecting to be pre-law, but I allowed myself to, of course, be curious about the things that were interesting me then. And I did work a little bit in, um, in the legal field, I did a internship, oh gosh, way back in the day for, for a paralegal within um, a development firm. And okay. there were liens and a bunch of contracts. And I said, no, I mean, I never really explored <laughs> like the court 
house courtroom. So maybe I would have thought differently, but at any rate, it takes all kinds of kinds and lives and I in life. And I was really drawn more to the toward the communication side of policy and media. And so politics has always set the stage. And actually this year, especially with um all of the interesting uh sociological things happening with COVID. I think a lot about political theory because I'm a total nerd. So it's not like that foundation hasn't served me. I just moved away from that as a career, of course. So went into comms, did a little bit in Lansing, um, actually joined Teach for America, moved down to to Mississippi, learned a ton about myself and left Teach for America, moved home, and was kind of in a similar place to where I was just over a year ago, where I was rebuilding and saying, what what did I learn from that experience? And um, that quote, failure, because I didn't stay in the program the full two years. How am I going to apply that to my future? And I was doing a little bit in brand sponsorship at that time. I was working at the nursery of my church, believe it or not, and a little bit at Gap. And, um, and then like I every start- person who moves back after college, you just exactly. take whatever ever job you can get. Yeah. You do something in customer service to really like figure out, you know, kind of get that <laughs> grit you need and like yeah, but- get the bug to know that you need something better in your life. <laughs> and then I did a little bit of work in political consulting, but ultimately, I mean, I, I don't want to digress this conversation, but, you know, I loathe our two-party system. So it was very much learning what you don't want in your early 20s, even into your mid and late 20s and all facets of life, personal, professional, spiritual, you name it. And then I decided, you know, I really wanted to get more experience that could expand nationally kind of outside of the scope of Lansing and the kind of political communications realm or Grand Rapids. I wanted to kind of break free. I think, um, you know, I, I remember Mr. Versluis was one of my high school teachers and I just adored him. And he used to write quotes on the whiteboard, um, at least weekly. I don't know how often he changed them, but nevertheless, one of them said, Security is not the meaning of my life. Great opportunities are worth the risk. And I remember really taking that to heart in high school and thinking about making leaps. And so that happened to be a really good time. You know, on a personal level, my my boyfriend at the time and I had broken up and that was really hard for me because I'm a really devoted person. And I was, yeah. when you love someone, you really love someone. I do. Yeah. I'm, yeah. A, I'm a bit of a hopeless romantic. Um, and that really caused me to be introspective and, and honestly, it gave me the freedom to really look outside of this area for yeah. whether it was an escape, who knows? I, you know, sometimes in life, we don't really know what moves us, but something does. And, um, So I decided to go back to grad school and I went to Northwestern for marketing and I fell in love with the advertising world and the sexiness of, I mean, really, it's all kind of a bit of a ruse, but I do love communications broadly and I loved the program. It was very hands-on and I ended up doing some consumer insights for the Art Institute of Chicago, which was like a pinch me moment because I love art so much, 
and are kind of an artist at heart, right? Because we'll talk about this too, but you're a writer. So um, not just are you a communicator, but you write. Um, And we also have similar backgrounds, but yours is on a larger scale than mine because I got married at 22. So I didn't have the freedom to go out and explore other options and worked at a very entry-level job at an agency here. And so we relate a lot on the the passion for marketing and advertising. You fit the mold a little bit more than I do of the glamorous life of marketing and advertising. <laughs> um, Let's revisit that. <laughs> um, but I think early in college, I noticed there were two different types of personalities in marketing. There were the messy creatives and then the put together could in control PR girls. And you, I think you fit that mold a little bit more than I do, (laughs) but we get along well because at the heart of it, we're still passionate about similar things. So two things that you just said are so funny. First of all, I think like we all ebb and flow through different periods of intensity in our careers. And so for you, you know, you said you got married early. I mean, I think a, we all start somewhere. So entry level, Absolutely. That was me, you know, grabbing the coffees, doing all the things. Um, and, and that's kind of beautiful. B, you said there's two kinds of people in marketing. And I honestly can't decide which one I'm more of. Because <laughs> if you put me in a certain group of people, they're like, Marissa, Marissa's so chill and spontaneous and messy. I'm the type of person who in my mind and on my computer, I have like a million tabs open at once. Yeah. Like that's, honestly, the best metaphor besides like a messy post-it note situation inside my brain where I have a a million half-finished thoughts just rumbling around. But in some groups, because it just depends on who you're around, you know, in some groups, I'll say, oh yeah, you know, I'm like laid back and people will guffaw, like, (laughs) like Marissa, you're the most type A person I've ever met in my life. So it, it does vary. It depends on who you, who you're with. Um, but I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head and I don't really need to go into too much more of my background. Suffice to say, I really did start out in PR and wanted those, you know, Wall Street Journal interviews sky rises in New York city, you know, you know, the stilettos, the, all the things. And really I was just like working crazy hours, you know, having meetings with China at 9 PM at night and like never sleeping, always second guessing myself, only doing account management. So I never got to write besides a press release, you know, or two, maybe a blog here and there. And, um, mine in the world of marketing, that's not creative. Those are all based on templates that you reuse again and again. So that's not a creative outlet when you're working for an agency. Right. And it's just a very go, go, go industry, which I highly respect, but I always kind of thought to myself, I want to be doing the things, making the things, not talking about the things that are are being made. Though, again, I mean, talking about from from awareness creation um, to making sure there's objectivity in media, you know, there, I mean, there are beautiful things happening in the PR world. Don't get me wrong. But I moved out to Boston because I wanted to be in the center of tech. So it was either San Francisco, Seattle, or Boston at the time, that's kind of starting to evolve a little bit. There's other pockets and hubs, but I just wanted to be in the action and um, started doing a ton more writing in Boston and then pivoted ultimately into experiential marketing where I was doing creative strategy. And I was like, oh, I'm home. You know, I could like shut my computer. I didn't have to have, you know, 
juggle seven clients. I mean, we're still juggling multiple clients, but you could do more brainstorming. You had a bit of time to really think and process. And that's how my brain works. So I was like, this is home. This, yeah, this is a home state as far as the strengths that I bring to the table and my work style instead of just necessarily, and here's a good observation. I mean, sometimes people will tell you what you're good at and you could ultimately create a career around what other people need from you versus the things you want to bring to the world. And it took such a good, a really good, good insight. And honestly, when I worked at an agency, that was literally my job is I did all the jobs nobody else wanted to do. And I loved it because I felt needed and I felt like I was saving the world every time I did a job, but the second layoffs came, I was the first to go. Mm. And and that's the ugly side of corporate America too. Like sure. you, no matter how loving and accepting and great the company you work for is, you're still just a number. You're still just a person and they yeah. have to stay away. They have to stay alive. And if it comes to taking away your livelihood, they have to do it. And uh, a little bit now that I went on a tangent um, <laughs> no, for people who don't know much about the marketing world, what is experiential marketing? events in a word. Um, Though I think that the idea of experiential marketing has changed a lot in the last five or five to seven years, um, especially as millennials have gained more disposable income and and kind of come into adulthood. Um, It's really, you know, people talk about brand activations a lot. It's just the fact that millennials and then the generation following them expect experiences. They expect more from brands, which is kind of the perspective that I've seen it from for in in my corporate career. And so how do you bring a brand from its kind of transactional state or its digital presence out into the world? Um, some people get it confused because I know I have, you know, my business card back in the day was, you know, senior strategist, experience design and experience design, you think UX, which makes you think of actual digital experiences and the process people go through online. But um, yeah, it's it's three-dimensional, physical, person-to-person interactions. Yeah. So like think of uh, if someone set up a ball pit at a concert. Yeah. You know, like that's the most basic example, but like something that everyone was doing for a while. Like discos. Yeah. Literally anything weird that's going on in town that is sponsored by a brand that's brand activation. So, (laughs) but a really, really fun career to be in if you're into events and people and communicating and, and for you in particular design and the way building an aesthetic for someone. It's a really great way to do that in real life. So just a little background on that. That's great. So you are in corporate America. You are killing it. You're making all the money. Is there something missing? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) That's such an interesting way to put it, Sam. And I, I, it's really important and increasingly difficult to to fully put myself back into that headspace of where I was when I started contemplating moving away from my job in Boston and the people I loved both professionally and personally and the life I had built there 
from just kind of the decision of a next step in a career, right? But I will say I had that itch. Um, And I don't know that it was necessarily the entrepreneurial itch. It was just the... And some of it maybe was because I was approaching my 30th birthday. I don't really think that was the impetus, but I could I could be mistaken. I think it really was just a lot of worlds colliding, a lot of things happening, not necessarily that milestone birthday. It's not like I woke up one day and was like, I'm going to be 30. I have to drastically change my life. <laughs> um, I was just, I started working with a coach and I could say, I could just, talk for days and days and days about how amazing that experience was because it taught me to invest in myself. And it's honestly, I think deciding to invest in a coach was scarier than moving across the country without a job, which we can put a pin in that because that's ultimately what happened. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, I just, she really asked me, you know, in, you know, kind of paraphrasing the Mary Oliver quote is, you know, what do you want to do with your one wild and precious life? And she got me asking the right questions instead of the easy questions. So meaning instead of, and I just recently wrote about this in relation to Sunshine Alley, the, you know, art installation that we just kicked off was, you know, instead of asking her what am I hoping to get out of the experience of coaching? To which I said, you know, I would love a promotion or a raise or to be a better leader or to better advocate for my team or learn better negotiation skills. Maybe do something, you know, like jump to a competitor or start working in-house instead of at an agency. None of which was drastic changes. Those would be pretty expected, I think from there, I, she said, okay, let's reframe that. If you kind of like the, the quote, you know, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Yeah. And she really just brought it out from like this robotic autopilot onto the next thing. She brought out Marissa, like the things that I had tucked away because I either felt unqualified for, or they felt like too much of a departure from the day-to-day that I had successfully built. Um, I don't really think it's easy to be on default. A, I'm not saying that, you know, having a stable career is a bad thing at all. It's just knowing yourself well enough to know if, if those are things that are advancing you towards a life that's meaningful or if they're distracting you from taking kind of sidesteps towards the life that would be more fulfilling for you. And I had to muddle through some really hard questions to get to that place. Yeah. And I felt found myself before I started my business in a very similar space where I had set all these goals for myself since I was a teenager of you're going to get married by this age. You're going to, yeah. you're going to have a career. You're going to be one of the only people in your program who actually works in the industry. You're going to show everybody that you can do it and you're going to do it being yourself, whatever that means. And I accomplished all those things by the time I was 25 and I was lost mm-hmm. because I didn't have any more expectations to live up to. And I had 60 more years of my life to live. And no other expectations to live up to. And so it was a real existential crisis to find myself in this place where I'd achieved everything I wanted and 
I still felt like it wasn't right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you just shared because the one of the biggest learnings that I extracted from that time of a very deep questioning in my life was how to trust my intuition and that feelings and emotions are information. So we are taught to stay on the straight and narrow, to continue to pursue, kind of mindlessly pursue, honestly, achievements. Um, And, you know, that stability is by and large. Now I say this with a full understanding of privilege because you need some level of stability before you can start to dream about all the what ifs of your life. But I think the fact that you can say you were lost without feeling shame for not having all the answers is truly the thing that propels you in life. Being able to say, I'm scared. I'm uncertain. I'm lost. I'm confused. I'm wrong. All of those things are negative emotions that we avoid, like run away from in our world. And that I have found, I have been at some of my lowest points when I have had a real awakening And it's really what you do with it from there that makes you see all of the potential of your life. I know I sound like very, uh, (laughs) I mean, I am an optimist, so I sound like an optimist through this, but I mean it through like, I've weathered that storm. This is not just like sunshine and rainbows, you know, (laughs) there's been a lot of dark moments. Well, and even like I got laid off from that dream job that I had. And I remember getting laid off and everyone who I worked with, even people I never talked to messaged me and were like, this is a good thing for you. They're like, you're not being used to your full potential. And you're just, you, you have so many things that you can contribute to the world. And we're so excited to see what you can do. And of course me and my like hating of myself because I got laid off due to no fault of my own, like couldn't take that in. But now I look back at all of these people who are 10 to 20 years older than me, who are like, listen, girl, like pursue this thing that you're really good at and actually do it because now's your chance. And I didn't for another year, but it's amazing how, when you take a step back, hindsight is 2020 and you can see, oh, these people knew I was going to be fine. The people in my life knew that this was the right direction for me to take, but I didn't know that. And I think a lot of that takes perspective and seeing it from a different angle. And a lot of times that doesn't happen until after you've weathered the storm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, um, well, A, I think so many people, you know, I was briefly on unemployment this past year. I'm more than happy to just be real with this audience about that. Um, you know, I left a six figure job and my tax returns are not pretty from 2020, but I am picking up more business than ever and exceeding my monthly salary right now in freelance opportunities. But it's really, it's the end game. It's the end game. You know, we could sit and, you know, kind of do, do a tit for tat scenario of what's more lucrative, you know, like working corporate world or working for yourself, you need to ultimately 
understand who you are, the pros and cons of both. And then you also need to just lean into like circumstantially what is in front of you. And I think being in your case, being laid off, I know so many people who are laid off, of course, because of COVID, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic that has really crushed a lot of people economically. And Um, not even just because of COVID, but in the world of marketing, that's, that's the name of the game. They lose a client, you get laid off. That's where you, and you have no, almost no control over that. And the client sometimes will just leave because they think they're going to get a better deal somewhere, go somewhere for two years and then come back. Like it's not, it has, it literally is not a personal attack. And that was hard for me too, because usually when I face rejection like that, I'm like, okay, what can I do to fix myself? Yeah. How can I make this better? And I was left in a situation where it was like, even my bosses were like, we're really sorry. Like, Yeah. We see a lot of potential in you, but we can't pay you. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I can't have hard feelings for you when you're just doing what you need to, to survive. And in the world of advertising, that happens all the time. And, you know, I was just listening to your, the podcast that you did with Jen Fillenworth, you know, and, and you said you were a guy's girl, I think you said, yeah. <laughs> you know, you were like a we, you know, we kind of sweep emotions under the rug. So I'll say, you know, you don't have to take that personally, but the process of being hurt by a job loss is also super valid. And I think one thing that I really, there's a few things about the corporate world that I either no longer drink the Kool-Aid or will vehemently oppose because I, you know, used to be the the biggest rah-rah cheerleader. I mean, listen, I was a sponge for Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, there, uh, you know, um, there are so many influencers, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, anyone. There are so many influencers in this space. And I have, I agree with some things that they preach. I disagree with some things, but I think, you know, hustle culture, I think is incredibly toxic. That's one thought. And then kind of the other piece of that, that you mentioned in having to learn how to not take personally a setback or a job loss is the fact that, and I talk about this a lot with my friends um, actually since the move, because I don't want to explain, I don't want to lead a conversation with, hi, I was once successful. So you should think I'm cool. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) what, what does that mean? I, I am still whole. I am still me. I am still interesting. I'm still a conversationalist, but we do overemphasize. I hate, for example, networking events where, you know, you're, your name's plate sticker says, who are you and your job title? You know, I think there's way more interesting things to say, you know, what Netflix show did you last binge? You know, how, you know, if you were an animal, what would you be? I mean, there are just so many times where we as a society inextricably link our identities and our self-worth to our jobs. Yeah. And and not even how much money we're making, like that it's, it's a title thing. It's an achievement thing. It's feeling like you're above other people. And, and why, (laughs) what good does that do? Two thumbs down, two thumbs way down. (laughs) 
You know, I had some some of the most successful in a traditional, I'm putting air quotes up right now, since some of my friends who are just killing it in life are the most self-actualized humans and would never make you feel small yeah. for being in their midst. You know, I, I some of my friends in Boston are incredibly accomplished residents and now post-resident physicians at, you know, Mass General Hospital, they would always lead a conversation with, this is my friend Marissa and she's so interesting and the most like cultured person, you know, just a a sense and a a real true deep-seated belief in not only a rising tide lifts all boats, but the fact that their own self sense of self and security and understanding that it takes all kinds of kinds, their specific expertise is not more valuable than say a carpenter's or an electrician's. Those are the types of people I gravitate towards because they understand something about the way the world works that a lot of people don't. Yeah. And those are people who are, um, secure in their own success. And I think that's really rare. I think the more I'm exposed to even just wealthier people in Grand Rapids, the, you can tell which ones are in a field where they're doing something valuable and happen to make a bunch of money doing that. And then where they're in fields where they became successful on the backs of others. And you can tell based on the way they interact with people it's not a mine's bigger than yours situation. It's a who are you and what do you stand for situation. And those are the kind of people that I'm drawn to as well. Yeah. It's not, you know, oh, I am I am so full of quotes <laughs> and then I'll always mess them up somehow. Just like, no, that that's the wrong analogy, you know. But the idea that a person will forget what you said and what you did, but not how they made you feel. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely right. And in the context of career and the people you meet through your career, there are still so many people in this world who have a scarcity mindset and who, one thing that I had to learn through my corporate experience was how to advocate for my peers. Yeah. And not be discouraged or, uh, which is, it's a very natural thing. And there's a lot of research actually behind it of, you know, what, what motivates and drives people to do good work and kind of go above and beyond in their work. And, and if they don't see the purpose behind it, or if they feel like they're being kind of put in a box or asked to do very kind of, uh, task oriented things. I had a, I had a manager once who, you know, this was almost a decade into my career, to be honest. And she would sit me down, even though I had drawn a lot of respect from my peers and really knew how to encourage them and set time aside to support them when they were feeling stressed. Um, You know, she really set me aside and she said, Marissa, you're not a leader. I was managing someone. I had a direct report. So cool. Um, you're, you're a, um, how did she phrase it? You know, there, basically there are leaders and there are doers and task workers, and you're here to do the tasks. And, but one of those tasks was leading. Mokes. (laughs) That is just 
to involve others and make them feel and also believe it's not just like a ruse you put on make everybody feel and genuinely internally intrinsically believe that every person's role is crucial yeah no matter the hierarchy or seniority like that is what makes the world run and unfortunately because of how a lot of organizations are structured that's not how a lot of people feel. And I think we're unfortunately creating these like glass cases of emotion (laughs) where people do what's asked of them, don't really kind of stretch themselves because they're not really being enriched in an environment where it's understood that that is... A, asked of them, and B, that they're capable of it, you know? And I'm not saying there, of course, will be, like, different levels. Um, and and also, some people just don't, just do want to kind of punch in their time cards and leave, and that's okay, too. They probably have rich social lives or personal lives or families, and all of that is well and good. It's just understanding the way that you affect others in your midst and vice versa, how they affect you. Well, yeah, and... And not sweating the small things, especially with millennials. Like I was the kind of, I don't, I could never work for someone again. I was thinking yesterday, how much would someone have to pay me to, to work for them? (laughs) And I was like, I think it would have to be so much money that I could only work for one year and then be done because I couldn't do it. Like, for example, I'm the kind of person who, when I'm committed to something, I'm committed to it. Like I'm your cheerleader. I'm on your team. We're going to innovate. We're going to do this. Well, I'm going to go above and beyond. It's going to be great. But the second you nitpick things about me, see you later. I'm not interested anymore. And my last job was like that, where it started out and I was staying until 7 PM when my, when my end time was 4:30, and I was my guys would be out on the coast in California and I'd stay working until they were done for the day. Cause they were three hours behind. And then I got yelled at for being half an hour late to work consistently when I was doing that. And I said, okay, you want me to come here in the hours that you want me here and only work in the hours when I'm here, then they can call you. Sure. <laughs> and you know, it's think- amazing how many companies still run that way where yeah. you have to, yeah. you have to, mark all their boxes and anything you do above and beyond is just expected. It's not appreciated or rewarded. You know, I think one thing that a lot of people forget when they're interviewing for work, and again, this is in normal times, this has a degree of privilege to it. So I really don't want to come off as someone who is not sympathetic to those types of just life realities. But, you know, I think um, when you're a, I commend you for being so entrepreneurial and I think you should know your own value and what is your walk away point when it comes to, if you were ever in a position where you were starting to interview for a full-time position at a company again, um, realizing, and this is for maybe people, you know, starting off in their career a bit more that you should be interviewing as much as the company that you're 
working for, it's not just like to check off a box in the interview process. Like, do you have any questions for us? And if you don't, then it's a sign that you're lazy. It's more like you genuinely need to think about the things that you need. You Well, and how much of your life you're going to be dedicating to that company, right? Like if you're going to be putting in realistically 50 hours a week at a salary job, because that's the way things are now. um, And that's on the low end. You need to understand if they're going to have your back when your kid's sick. You need to right. understand if they're going to yep. if they're going to yep. give you vacation time in the first year. Like yep. there are still careers out there where they're like what do you mean you don't you don't give vacation time until you've been here for 6 months. I'm like, yeah. okay. Well then, <laughs> I'm not interested. <laughs> and some of it is some of it is cultural and some of it is boundary setting. And you know, it's interesting that they say that, you know, boundary setting this can be a gendered thing where when, when women express the need for setting boundaries, it's perceived as a liability to their, their growth. But, you know, oftentimes when men express boundaries, they're, they gain more respect actually for being able to say, you know what, it's 6 PM. I'm going to eat dinner with my family. So we need to work on that as a culture. And I'm, I'm not even going to like, I could again, have another entire podcast about (laughs) that topic. I won't go too far into it, but I think boundary setting, I did not know how to set boundaries when I was early on in my career. I was like, you say jump, I say how high. And I mean, I literally, I'm going to, Listen, I can't believe I'm admitting this right now, but you, Sam, I'm such an honest person that you are freeing me. One time I left work late. I was taking two different modes of transportation to get to a volunteer project. So I, I'm really passionate about um, domestic violence survivors, and I was working at a domestic violence shelter um, once a week, and and it was about 45 minutes out of the city in Boston. And Needless to say, before I could get my key fob out after I had done all these things, I legitimately peed my pants outside of this shelter because I didn't take bathroom breaks at work. Yeah, (laughs) Um, And that was a wake-up call for me to be like, I literally have no boundaries (laughs) with work. I can't say, you know what, that email can wait. And that's not, that's not a, um, that's not a sign of strength or work ethic or commitment. That's a sign that you haven't yet grown into yourself enough to say, is this high priority? Can this wait? And who are you trying to impress? I think also, a lot of that, I'm valuable enough to go to the bathroom when I need to go to the bathroom. Absolutely. So I think on the one side, it's, it's bound <laughs> like Letting your boundaries be known from the day you start work, not in an uppity way, not in a confrontational way. You just do it over time. You create consistency, you show. And I think a lot of that is top down. Like leaders have to show those boundaries too. And that's where it plays into culture. But you do, you have to interview people and know what you want. Like that's, I think where a lot of, I, I am nothing if not introspective. I think that's probably my superpower if I had to say, just understand what you're looking for, write it down, document it, track it, see how it changes, because that's what you have to do in your career is make sure that the people you're working for and with the company above them and their, you know, principles, their work culture, their bylines, you know, the things that they practice, you know, the practice, what you preach kind of, those are the more in touch you get with that 
in your own world allows you to advance in your career, if nothing more than just being able to to learn. And I actually, I don't think we've ever talked about this, but I actually walked away from, so I had said with that career coach, you know, I had said, I want to make X amount salary. I want director level title. I want to have a, an inroad to move back to the Midwest. So about six months into that, about five or four or five months before I ended up just moving to the Midwest, I got a job offer and it was 30 plus percent more than what I was making. It was a director level title and it was done with the understanding that I would move after year one from the Boston office to the Chicago office. So on paper, it looked like everything that I asked for off paper. I continued to probe a little bit. I said, can I, can I have an, you know, they were really fast to give me the offer, which was kind of like, okay, do they really need to fill this? You know, what does this say about the person that I'm replacing? Just investigating for on your own behalf, like be your own biggest advocate, your own best friend, because ultimately I had to walk away from that job. And on sometimes when I was having a really hard time over the last year, when I was, you know, really not making much income, I had to look at that offer letter and say, this is what you're capable of, Marissa, but you know yourself best. And, you know, I had asked, can I interview with a female VP? You know, these are things that other people might say, Marissa, you're crazy. You should have just taken the job. But I tell you, you will never lose in life if you trust your instincts. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that instinct (laughs) led to moving back to the Midwest and we're going to take a break and then we will talk about that afterwards and all of the great things you're doing. Refill time. (laughs) Doing the wave. People can't see this, but we're we're dancing. (laughs) Uh, so you decided to move back to the Midwest. So tell us a little bit about the decision to do that. And, uh, and I'm just going to say that I know a lot of people who in their almost thirties have moved back in with their parents after having some really cool life adventures and feel very, um, trapped by that, but it really is something that made the most sense. So explain what happened. So in being emboldened by my work with my coach and a lot of the self-exploration that I went through in 2019, I really just kind of started to say to myself, maybe I'm looking at this wrong. You know, for years I had been interviewing with well, I had been applying to and had a couple of interviews introductory with some of the big players in the furniture industry. If anyone listening from Herman Miller is on here, I love you. Call her. (laughs) (laughs) Or Steelcase, I mean, but Herman Miller too. So whatever. Well, no, I I do. I I will say I love them both for very different reasons, but I, I've had some great conversations with people at Steelcase. And I think some of the innovations they're doing, especially with some of the work with Susan Kane and, um, you know, the power of quiet. Anyways, I, I have a lot of research in my brain. I'm not going to turn this into a furniture show, <laughs> but, um, 
I had said to myself for years, if I found the right job back in the Midwest, I would move back in a heartbeat. And then I thought to myself, and this is the power of the reframe. If my heart is calling me to move back to the Midwest, why in the Sam hell would I wait for the job to be the sign that moves me to make that action, right? Yeah. Like, I think sometimes, well, A, again, income is hugely important here. I don't want to, I don't want to underemphasize that, but it had just been weighing on me. And I had conversations with my parents and I said, can I do this? Would you support me? And of course, if you've met my mother, Marilyn is, is a peach. And she was like, move home tomorrow. Like I will like get the trailer right now. (laughs) I will pay out the extra, you know, I mean, she was just all about it. Yeah. She was like, I'll buy you new bedding for you. I'm actually not, not exaggerating about that. No, I I believe you. My parents are, are gems. And they, they said, how can we help? And You know, I've discussed this a little bit with you, but the walls we build in a world of hyper-independence just need to sometimes be bulldozed down. You know, um, I needed a very vivid, not subtle reminder that I could lean on other people for support when oh I needed them. Yeah, we, we got COVID and we've been very vocal about this. I just started yeah. sobbing because people just started sending me money. I do. Oh, and I'm about awesome. to cry right now because like, yeah. cry, girl. I don't take anything from anyone, right? Like I have such a hard time. Even my friends who give me cookies occasionally, I have a hard time with. And I post on Instagram that we have COVID and we're not going to have any money for the next two weeks. And people who I've talked to once are sending me Venmo requests That's so that they can pay me. And I like the the offers of meals and all these things where Caleb and I aren't down and out. We had a savings account, but the fact that people really do want to help you. Like they do. And and your your parents especially here. Yeah. And and that's one especially thing about here. the Midwest that is beautiful. Yeah. And I'm forever yeah. grateful for all of the the following of people who are oh. genuine and great that I have because like I I was completely overwhelmed. And I'm sure you felt that way too when you were like mom and dad, I'm I'm taking this step back. And they were like, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, you, you get out of it what you put into it. There are people like you and I who would give the shirt off our backs to people. And though sometimes there are moments in life where you feel hardened to the world for a negative experience that kind of bites you in the butt for something like that, by and large, you see examples of people reciprocating yeah. and people reaching out. And and for those of you listening, you know, if, if you're not feeling that, I just challenge you to take a step back and be like, are you cynical? Are you doing it for the return? One of my favorite books of all time is Adam Grant's Give and Take. And, and there are, there has to be balance. Of course, you can't be a walking doormat, but like to be able to give to others and allow yourself to receive from them is really what makes the world go round. Again, I'm now I'm going to sound like I'm waxing poetic about, you know, the, the meaning of life, but 
Um, anyways, that got me here because by and large, I mean, so I have four beautiful, uh, three nephews and a niece and, um, the oldest of which is my godson. His name is Henry. I am obsessed with him. He's the most precocious little, um, just like adult, adult, like a, like a six-year-old, like who sometimes seems like a 35-year-old. He's just very wise. Which is very much and, your personality. So like you guys probably get along really well. Oh, <laughs> I mean, we did make forts over Christmas while I wore a mask. So that was <laughs> nice. Um, but no, I mean, it, I just, it really was time and I knew it was time. And I am really grateful that I found the right tools and resources in my life to reinforce the fact that, the things that were coming up, like sometimes physical. I mean, I had, you know, we don't need to talk too much about it here, but I had, you know, an emergent surgery that happened that really caused me to stop in my tracks. And sometimes I feel like your body's response, your mental response, your emotional, all of these things kind of um, merged to give you signals that a change is needed. And that was truly it for me in 2019 to where I felt really empowered. It wasn't like kind of a walking away with my tail between my legs. I mean, I had just this ample feeling of faith and strength and, um, potential for the future that, uh, was really palpable at that time and was super cool. I actually think maybe later on, but I do want to read to you a journal entry. I'm a big journaler about kind of my first week back home. Um, and you know, it, it, there was uncertainty of course, but I just felt held. If that makes sense. I felt like, if there are people there who know me to my core, who, and an industry, I mean, I worked in experiential marketing. Like I loved the idea of gaining momentum when I came back to West Michigan in, in the furniture space. I mean, I still haven't let go of that dream. I mean, this past year has made it really hard. It, office furniture has of course taken a big hit. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> just like a double dump on the fact that it's like events were shut down. Office furniture is not doing great. I'm like, okay, cool. Like God, universe, whatever you believe, you know, you brought me here and you plopped me down in the Midwest. And then you said, here you are, you know, in the river without any paddles. And I'm just like, I'm going to roll with it. (laughs) Yeah. So you move home and you're, parents are on board. You move back into your childhood bedroom or whatever. Yeah. You want me to talk about that? You said. Yeah. I want you to talk about just <laughs> reassimilating into the culture of West Michigan and how coming back at 30 feels with everyone around you. Well, dating is kind of a bitch. Can I swear on this? Yeah. Like it's I'm an, it's an explicit say. podcast. Okay. So like everybody's, everybody's married. <laughs> That's not great. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. There was like, I think GR magazine had like on its cover, oh uh, let's say home <laughs> GR had, had posted it because their, their feature was in it. 
And I said, I'm going to have to disagree with that cover. They were like, yeah, singles it was- and crap. talking about why it's a great place to date. And I'm like, two <gasps> thumbs down. Like, oh, it was bad, bad when I was 20. Not, and that- <laughs> not great. Right. And now I'm competing against the 20, well, competing. I don't believe like, this is not a zero sum game equation. I don't feel competitive with 21 year olds, you know, but you know, they've got, they've got less, you know, less baggage in a lot of different ways. In every sense of the word. (laughs) Oh my God. I've had two Sazeracs now. Just like loose lips. Yeah. By the way, Marissa is drinking Sazeracs because we're recording this on Fat Tuesday. So she's right. It seemed on brand. Yeah. I'm not drinking right now because I got dehydrated last week and I'm still dehydrated. So smart, smart. Drink up that water and tell me to shut up when I start talking about dating too much. So um, yeah, moving back to the Midwest, the culture here is very palpable. Yeah. You know, I, I love what the Midwest gives me. So my friends in grad school used to call me a pure Michigan commercial. People know (laughs) how much I speak to the credits of this community and it, it is community. Like I always felt like a number in other cities. I don't feel like a number here. People have been so unbelievably receptive. I have had conversations with chefs without any sort of background that would qualify me to be in those conversations or rooms. People have believed in me. Um, I've been able to join, you know, initiatives like Windows GR or, you know, jumping in to, you know, help kind of start up the Southeast market tribe, you know, with Alita and with Kara. And it's just like really cool to see that there is a genuine belief in community and an ability to kind of pick up where you left off here. And I think that, that I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that first and foremost, because that's truly the thing that brought me back here is the the fact that I knew that I could have influence, but also that there were people here who were really receptive to anyone who just had initiative, you know, people who were just invested and cared and that's super cool. So I I have to say that first. Um, Well, and that's kind of what led us to be connected. We both started efforts to join the same circle at about the same time Um, because you started Dinner Club GR and I started my business, which was primarily at the time going to influencer events. Um, Shout out to Liz for giving me that opportunity and allowing me to take pictures at her events to start with and then meeting all these people and then everyone supports each other and it's great. And then we meet each other and then we're friends and it's awesome. But that all starts with the way that Grand Rapids works. You meet one person and they connect you to everyone. And people are connectors. I mean, I credit CJ for obviously introducing me to you and and for believing in me and taking that coffee meeting. And, you know, I think that there's so much power in, in those types of hell yes scenarios where people really do, um, they, they don't just kind of dance around the pleasantries and they really do kind of take that next step to help you and kind of pull, pull you up, you know, like that's really the thing. There's like a passiveness to, advocacy for people. And then there's this active advocacy. And I think there's a huge difference. Um, 
And I truly felt that. It's so funny that you said that we started around the same time because when I met you, I was like, you know, there was this like cadre of like people and like you guys were all together. And I just, I just assumed that that was like the way it was. It's so funny (laughs) to think about, you know, and, and how easily we shrink and play small. It's like, I obviously had so many things to contribute, but I was, when I first moved back to Grand Rapids, just a perpetual sponge. And I think that's kind of why, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, my accolades or whatever, but I think humility is huge. Yeah. Anytime you make a shift, humility is important in general, anytime. Um, but when you make a shift, if, if you can't first, it's kind of like undercover boss, that stupid show, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like if you can't, really just see how people function and what roles people play from like the bottom up and the top down, you're missing so much. So yeah, the first six to nine months of me being in Grand Rapids, and of course I'm my own worst self-critic. Like I was so hard on myself being like, why am I not like the CEO of Hoobie Wuddy by now? You know, no. I mean, just to say, like, give yourself some time yeah. to like really understand the dynamics that are at play. And, um, and, and, and this is home. I will, okay. Again, I'm getting existential here. There are two things that I don't want to forget to say about, about my move. Cause you did ask two things. I think belonging is so hard as millennials when, when we're such a mobile generation mm-hmm. and I really struggle with that. And I struggle with that here. So just out of transparency to your audience, because you're so real, Sam, and I know that you encourage others to, to be that way. I think it's really hard. And, and sometimes, um, you know, others in this community, please do kind of factor this in to anyone who leaves and moves home be compassionate. Like it is really hard to, to take a leap of faith, to want to grow and to say heck yes to an opportunity that means you're leaving home. You know, there's social and cultural capital that comes from staying in one place and building up from it. So there are a lot of people who have tons of talent great ideas and a a beautiful, rich outside perspective that feel very isolated and alienated coming back because it's kind of like you dip your toe in and you wonder if you will be like welcomed. And it's, it's a very strange emotional experience for someone who's from here because you just take for granted when you say this is home, this is my hometown, there's a lot of baggage and weight that comes with that to be like, this is my home, but does it feel like home? Yeah. Are there opportunities that give me a place to build a home from? And and so I say that because I've obviously been in the place of coming back and, and going through a lot of self-doubt about that decision, about what that means for my opportunities. and you know, I think that belonging is a very amorphous thing for millennials, period. And we experienced it in COVID because so many people, to your point, moved back home with their parents temporarily from like major cities. But people who do make that choice and then choose to stay and rebuild, that takes a lot of effort. Yeah. And a lot of it is emotional effort because there's a lot of self-doubt that comes with it. Yeah. 
Well, and there's this, this element of when you move away, it is kind of a glamorous thing, right? When you're from a relatively small town, people are like, oh, she's the one who moved to Boston. She's the one who got the (laughs) corporate career, you know, like, and then you move home and people have made families and built businesses and have taken all that time in the same place and made something out of it. And you're right. It's, it's intimidating. And especially in Grand Rapids, it can feel a lot like bad high school moments where, um, and I am guilty of contributing to this too, because public perception is that I hang out with the same three girls all the time. And that's not the case. Um, (laughs) we actually spend a lot less time together than people think. Um, but I want to put it out there too, that, that my mission and your mission even is not to make people feel that way. It's to bring people up with us because you're right. The boats rise with the tide. Even if you're another Mm -hmm. photographer and you feel like we're competitors, I don't want to be competitors. I want to be friends. I want to learn about the things that you've struggled with and overcome. And that's the whole point of this podcast, right? Is ordinary people who have invested their lives in things that nobody even knows about because people don't ask them about their lives. And um, yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because I think people don't understand how much emotional effort it takes to re-involve yourself in a community after leaving. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It is a lot of work and a lot of it is emotional too. So I mentioned earlier, like self-awareness and emotional attunement. And the unfortunately reality is that that takes a lot of work. Yeah. And it's work you can't see and it's work that you can't check off a to-do list. And it's just, um, I, I think it, it makes you stronger. It makes you better, but to envelop someone with the kind of generosity of spirit that comes with seeing that they're experiencing something that you don't know, you know, that kind of deep empathy is, is truly essential to the human experience, but it's really easy in a work setting and even in a social setting, if you're very accustomed to your own kind of small social group that again, you've known since high school, it's very easy to kind of dismiss that or to overlook it. So to be able to, I have these friends, my, my black friends, and I don't like to categorize them that way, but it's the best way to explain it. Who don't feel like Grand Rapids is their home because they've never had quality relationships like that here with people of influence in Grand Rapids because there's this barrier of that you're talking about. You're talking about the same barrier of you come into the community and the people who are active feel like they're not inviting. And so if you're really trying to make a difference in Grand Rapids, it's really hard to break through that barrier. And then you add on the addition of race and and that's a whole other barrier that hopefully I'll have some friends on here to talk about soon, but it's, it's a very real thing here of feeling like the community doesn't welcome you unless you're a part of a very small group. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a huge, important, um, topic and, uh, kind of, um, undertaking if you will, and I'm I'm excited to hear what uh, future guests have to say because I do think inclusion and um, 
a movement away from, I touched on this earlier, but a movement away from kind of a scarcity mindset of, you know, the way things have always been done or, you know, I think just moving to abundance of in, in all facets helps have more people at the table, more perspectives at the table. And that you can't lose yeah. when you have that scenario. You really can't lose. It's just, unfortunately, it's the um, it's the emotional intelligence and the genuine ambiguity. And this is where I think I've been strengthened as a person through my move back home and quitting my job and not knowing what was going to happen next. You know, embracing ambiguity and, and seeing that... Um, ambiguity is, is really actually like the lifeblood. Yeah. It, it, it's so essential to life, but there's an avoidance. We as humans avoid ambiguity. So it's like understanding that that's a part of the equation makes you more receptive to other people who have an outside view from you, different perspective. Um, all of that is, is really cool. Yeah. It's honestly the best. Once you break through the ice, it's the best part of the the human experience. It's, it it is. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's why I love living life is learning about things that I literally know nothing about because. Yeah. Yeah. And once again, the point of this podcast is, is breaking through that barrier of the ambiguity with people and just asking the questions that you're scared to ask. You know, I, and I have looked stupid many times doing that, but I think if you have the right relationships and people who understand that you're trying to grow together and understanding it, it works. I agree with you completely. I'm, and I admitted that I peed my pants on this (laughs) podcast. So Um, so talk, I want to hear about dinner club. I want you to talk about the things that you're doing. I want you to talk about Sunshine Alley and really just like what your dreams for the things you're passionate about are for the future. Hmm. I love this topic. (laughs) (laughs) So I created Dinner Club in December of 2019 um, with this idea of, it's, it's not a novel idea. There are plenty of dinner clubs and supper clubs and there are dinner clubs here. You know, uh, the thing that I kind of tried to observe as I moved home was just the fact that some of the, most of the dinner clubs or supper clubs here were kind of professional chef driven or industry focused. And I also know that again, a dinner club is not a novel concept. I just love to give it my own spin, yeah. you know, my own kind of personality and brand uh, with, you know, a, a kind of journalism, PR background and uh, appreciation for brand. It really is about spotlighting local chefs and giving them forums to not only kind of come out from behind the scenes and out from the kitchens to to talk about themselves and what got them to where they are now, but also to give them a, a place to be really creative. And I can do the marketing, PR, promotion, bring the people, you know, if you build it, they will come. And, you know, that's very relational. Yeah. So in that case, I feel like it's something that you know, Grand Rapids could of course use a little bit more of because it's just, it's fun and different. Um, I've always said that 
it's about balancing kind of comfort foods and the things that you find familiar with going outside of your comfort zone and a bit of novelty in that respect. Um, I think obviously with my background in experiential marketing and experience design, there's a lot of details that make it kind of up the ante or things like that. But I of course hope to to start doing, I think it's probably realistic to say an event a quarter once events can kind of happen. Um, but I'm loving interviewing chefs on my Instagram page and just, of course, the creative components that go into it, whether it's deciding the theme for the event or the tablescapes themselves. It's just totally an outlet that I haven't really had before this to really get in touch with the things that I love most. So it's, it's totally, uh, it's been a huge blessing to me in a difficult time to be able to just have a way to channel some energy, Yeah, you know? And so I really have a lot of dreams and, and hopes and, and partnership ideas for, for the year to come. So that's dinner club in a nutshell. Did I miss anything? Do you think? I think, um, would you be willing to do, uh, events for like dinner parties for other people, like tablescapes and design and things like that? That's a good question. I've had a couple of instances where people have asked, um, if it's like, a an engagement party or a milestone birthday. And I think my answer would be absolutely. I just haven't yet cracked the nut of how to like price charge or monetize that. Yeah. Okay. Um, But I do love it. Yeah. So your goal eventually is to get a job or are you wanting to grow dinner club and still freelance? Like what, do you have a vision for it or are you just letting go and letting God or what's up? Gosh, I am way too controlling to let go and let God. I would love to do that. Like that is a life goal. <laughs> well, most of the time you and don't have a choice and like, that's how it happens anyways. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like I think the one thing that I have learned in this past year is how little I actually control about life, which makes me a better human. Yeah. So I will put that out there. Um, I am I am ready to go back full time. I would love to keep a couple of freelance writing projects. I have some really great clients who, you know, have that need and I can do that in in my own time and continue to juggle dinner club. I mean, hell, I have if you work an agency, you know how to juggle. Like I should literally have professional bullshitter because that's what you do when you have to like frame, you know, and I should also have like professional, um, juggler. Like those would be my two like monikers on a, on a, um, business card. But no, I, I, I think I have so much passion. I am just like a bundle of energy, like an energizer bunny. I do have to learn how to take breaks and really give myself some rest, but I just am loving that I have outlets right now for all the passions that I have, like doing food writing, doing, um, you know, having clients now in the tech fields that are, 
our writing specific gives me way more of a writing outlet and portfolio than I've ever had before. So those are all really beautiful things. Um, but I think I'm really missing teamwork and collaboration. I um, I love people management and I love people. Yeah. I love mentorship. Yeah. I love collaboration. And that's really something I think through the pandemic that I've really realized I miss my producers. I miss my art directors. I miss my creative directors and, you know, all of my 3D designers and just the the camaraderie. Um, and so I think that the kind of respite from all of that has made me abundantly prepared to jump back in. So I do think that I I I have some inbound inquiries yeah. right now that could transition to full-time or, you know, I, I think that it'll likely be the case, but, you know, I talked to my dad about this a lot because my dad's a, he, he owns his own business. And so there's entrepreneurial spirit in my blood. Um, cause I'm very, very much like my dad for better, or for worse. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, he and I have talked about it and it's like, I'll never lose the information I've gained this past year about yeah. like how to manage a business, how to do business development, how to manage the ebbs and flows of like busy months and slow months. And I think that'll play out in the future for me. But right now I'm, I'm definitely looking for a place that I can call home. I mean, I talked about belonging a second ago and I still feel like, you know, the, the, um, the attributes that I have and, and the kind of background that I have, um, work well for a corporate environment that has the right culture and right investment in their people. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you want to follow Marissa, you should, uh, at M Cali F C A L L I E F. Um, or Dinner Club GR. She hosts a lot of really fun events back when we're back to having real events. Um, And I'll probably be there too. So you can do that. Um, Thank you for taking the time and getting tipsy on this week, weeknight afternoon with me. You. Thank you so much. You are such a beacon of light to this community and I could not be more grateful for the person that you are. And I hope that you don't edit that out because I mean it. And I think more people, so many people can learn from you. And I just think your realness is something that is contagious. Thank you. You know, I'm bad at compliments, but Caleb won't take it out because he probably agrees with you. Okay. We're done and we're going to be done. So, dun, dun, dun.